PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The following PTJ podcast is the 2012 Rothstein Roundtable. Medical Homes, PACA, IFDS. Where do physical therapists fit in a reforming healthcare environment? The 2012 Rothstein Roundtable took place at PT 2012, the annual conference and exposition of the American Physical Therapy Association, on June 8, 2012, in Tampa, Florida. The participants are Dr. Anthony DeLito, Dr. Stacy Cochran Comstock, and Carolyn Odo. The moderator of the Rothstein Roundtable is Everett James. Introducing the Roundtable is APTA Vice President for Government and Payment Advocacy, Dr. Justin Moore. Good afternoon. We're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for the 2012 Rothstein Debate and Rothstein Roundtable. My name is Justin Moore, and we look forward to having an engaging and interesting discussion today on what pretty much has been the number one question I've heard over the last five, six years as we talked about healthcare reform, as we saw the legislative debate of healthcare reform, and now that we're in the implementation of healthcare reform, is the key question that's on the slide where do physical therapists fit in a reformed healthcare delivery system? So before we get started, I have a couple quick housekeeping announcements. First, please turn off your cell phones or turn them onto the quiet phase and refrain from conducting any calls. The main reason for this is we're recording this session, and so try to keep those interruptions to a minimum. The second is any handouts from this presentation will be available on APTA's website through November 23rd, and the session evaluations are electronic, so please check your email today and make sure you fill out the evaluation of this session. To begin, I'm going to introduce the chair of the Rothstein Roundtable, Dr. Tony Delito. Tony is professor and associate dean for research in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also the director of the Research Comprehensive Spine Center at the UPMC and vice president of education and research centers for rehabilitation services, formerly the CORE Network. I've had the privilege to work with Tony over the last several years, and he's been a great resource for us on really understanding how healthcare reform is going to be implemented at the delivery system level. By his interaction both at the education and the delivery system level, we've really been able to get key insights of what this means to physical therapists as they move forward in the implementation of healthcare reform. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tony Delito. First off, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to, again, once more be a part of the Rothstein Roundtable, previously known as the Rothstein Debate, and I'll get into that in a second. I want to spend a little bit of time talking a little bit about Jules, because I think people need to know about Jules Rothstein a little bit to understand what we're trying to accomplish in this uh, roundtable. Jules, as you know, is Editor-in-Chief Emeritus, as it says in the slide, but for those of us who knew Jules and worked with Jules, it was much more than that. He was provocative, to say the least. Provocative in a sense of uh, always appreciating dialogue and professional dialogue. Jules lamented to me over and over again about the coming of age of PowerPoint and how that stifled dialogue, which is one of the reasons why uh, you won't see very much in PowerPoint slides and, and anything that goes on in these Rothstein debates. He uh, 
appreciated dialogue, and that's what we always try to uh, emulate when we do anything named here after Jules. Uh, we had previously done Rothstein debates. This topic we thought was more amenable to a roundtable, but we still hope that there's good dialogue and, uh, and hopefully some disagreement. That's what we're driving at here. I'd like to introduce our speakers uh, that are going to be part of the roundtable. First, my colleague at the University of Pittsburgh, Everett James. Everett is what we like to call an outsider. He's not a physical therapist, okay? Um, there's no better way to get dialogue started than to bring an outsider in and have the outsider look at us and ask us some hard questions. And that's what we're asking Everett to do. He's a former Pennsylvania Secretary of Health. Uh, he oversaw regulation in hospitals, nursing homes, managed care plans in Pennsylvania. And we were lucky to land him at the University of Pittsburgh as Associate Vice Chancellor for Health Policy and Planning in uh, the Schools of Health Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Everett has also spent some time in Washington working uh, at the federal level. His, his appointment is in the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh, but he advises all the health sciences schools, and Everett has been engaged with all of us in our effort to become a little more relevant in the healthcare world by moving our policy initiatives forward and uh, moving some of our comparative effectiveness research forward. So uh, he's coming from that perspective. Uh, I discussed some things with Everett this morning. He has some very provocative things to ask us, and he'll be asking the panel as well as uh, asking the audience. Participating us in the roundtable is Carolyn Odo. Carolyn is Vice President for Operations Support and Associate Administrator at the Harris County Hospital District in Houston, Texas. And our other uh, participant is Stacy Cochran Comstack, and she's a physical therapist at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. I'm not spending a lot of time on their titles because I don't think their titles are as important as why they're here. We can have all sorts of people putting up all sorts of slides about models that we should be striving for. Well, these are the guys that are doing it out there, okay? They're actually in the trenches. They're actually doing what we're talking about wanting to do, and that's why we asked them to be here. So in addition to being provocative, we hope that what this uh, roundtable leads to is people who are um, going to be also educating us on how they did it and how, it, how maybe some of their strategies might work for us in our situations. So we're going to start by having Everett spend some time talking about setting the stage, and then he'll be asking the people in the roundtable questions, and then as we move on, uh, when it seems right, we'll go to the audience for questions. Okay, Everett? Thank you, Tony. So this is a uh, no PowerPoint zone uh, today, and I'm not going to give a long lecture of, uh, to start this out. I'm just going to say a, a couple of things, and I appreciate all of you being here. Uh, I do want to thank the American Physical Therapy Association for uh, inviting me to come down here and spend some uh, time with you all. It's wonderful to be with my tremendous colleague, Tony Delito who I, has been you know, one of the, my key points of contact in the university and somebody I think is really going to lead uh, physical therapy forward. I did get a chance last night to attend the uh, Foundation Gala, uh, and that was a tremendous opportunity for me to see uh, how physical therapy is supporting itself, supporting research, building the evidence base, uh, just to see the students in there, young people, and just they, they must have a lot of hope and promise because of what's being created through this association uh, and the foundation. I fundamentally believe that physical therapy is an important part of the answer to uh, the healthcare system. Uh, I don't think we've truly figured out exactly what those roles are going to be for 
I guess we call it advanced practice professionals. I, I remember when I started in my job in, in Harrisburg, and it was, uh, let's see, I think it was allied professionals, and then it went to, so what's the raise? Is advanced practice professionals, is that acceptable? Does, it, does everybody okay with that as a, as a title, or is there, is there something else we should be using? Is that good? My feeling is uh, they can call us whatever they want as long as they pay for what we do. <laughs> I, I think if, if we go back in time, it was even mid-level providers for a while. That was, uh, that was one when I took over my job. I said, I don't think this is going to be a, a way to elevate these important parts of the profession. So um, I believe physical therapy is going to be a, a key component to this. Uh, when I took over my job as the Secretary of Health for Pennsylvania, I had basically three objectives. Uh, number one was pass a indoor smoking ban. Uh, there was no Clean Indoor Air Act in Pennsylvania, and that was, uh, that was my objective number one. The second objective I had was to go into the schools and uh, get kids exercising again uh, by requiring 30 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity for every child in every school in Pennsylvania. And I was able to achieve that, and we changed those standards, uh, and I'm you know, very proud of that. I uh, also went into the nutrition environments in the school. I uh, always felt there was a real disconnect between what we were teaching kids at 11 o'clock and at 11.30 they would walk into the cafeteria and have an experience that had nothing to do with what we just taught them about nutrition. Uh, and so we, we, were, we were able to change the nutrition standards in, in the Pennsylvania schools. And that was, uh, that was something that I you know, feel will be a lasting impact on, on children in Pennsylvania. Uh, and the third objective I had when I took over the job was to expand the scope of practice for advanced practice professionals. You probably know, I think Pennsylvania was the first state to license physical therapists. Is that right? 1913? Uh, it only took us about 90 years to actually update our laws from uh, you know, that point forward. You know, Pennsylvania has got a rich tradition in medicine and teaching of medicine. And, uh, and so uh, let's just say it's, a, it's quite an entrenched place uh, and so when I decided that I was going to expand the scope of practice for nurses, pharmacists, physical therapists, uh, the medical society, uh, let's just say they really didn't give me a warm and fuzzy reception the first uh, couple conversations we had uh, had about that. Uh, I, you know, I heard that patients were going to die or were going to be misdiagnosed. Uh, it was going to actually jack up uh, malpractice rates. Uh, and so we ended up, uh, finally, uh, from 1913 to 2002, it took us that long to get direct access uh, for physical therapy. Uh, and then in 2008, uh, we expanded the definition of physical therapy, basically using the uh, model legislation that the American Physical Therapy Association uh, came up with. Uh, we inserted that into the definition of physical therapy. Uh, and also, uh, I was pleased that we were able to get some expansion and some definition of physical therapy assistance as well. Uh, and so my first question to this group is, okay, so we've expanded the scope of practice. We've changed these laws. More work needs to be done to make this universal. Uh, Pennsylvania still, I would call, is a limited state as opposed to a, a fully open uh, state. But, you know, so I, you know, we, I changed, we've changed these laws in 2008 and I, one of my questions to you all is, tell me about the scope of practice laws in your state, whether they've actually achieved allowing physical therapists to practice to the full extent of their training and education. And if not, what other barriers are there 
Uh, because I've heard from nurses, I've heard from people in the pharmacy field, it's really about credentialing. There's a whole lot of, the hospitals have, you know, a complex maze to uh, try to keep things, uh, you know, the way that they are. So even though we've had expanded scope of practice, uh, and I know you're from two very different states, uh, you know, Texas and Oregon, or it probably couldn't be, you know, any difference from their population or regulation standpoint, uh, the politics of the state. So, um, Stacey, why don't we start with you and you tell us a little bit about the scope of practice laws in your state, what they've allowed, and then what barriers uh, there are to full full practice. Well, I'll speak to direct access. And we've had a direct access in place for quite some time. A few years ago, we were able to expand. Our direct access allows for a physical therapist to evaluate and treat currently for 60 days. Um, and that, w- that was updated a few years ago. Prior to that, it was evaluate and treat, I think, for 30 days. And so... Uh, it's not perfect, but in comparison to what's out there, um, it's, it's very workable for direct access. I think one of our bigger challenges facing us right now is protection of the term, and that's what's, I think, getting in our way, and, and we continue to um, fight that battle. In Texas, we have limited direct access, so we can um, evaluate a patient without a referral, but if the patient needs treatment, we need to get a referral from a physician. So. Uh, we're finding that that's very limiting in Texas, especially what we're, what we're trying to do with the medical home. Because in the medical home, uh, the primary care doctors would love to have physical therapists as, as the leads in managing musculoskeletal issues. So they would, the doctors in the trenches, what, what they're telling us is they would love for us to be in the clinics uh, conducting evaluations and doing treatments, they don't necessarily want to do that. So we're finding that the restrictions that exist in Texas today limit our ability to really be fully integrated in the medical home concept. Okay, I think that's a, a good segue to the next thought I have. So we've been promoting new healthcare delivery models, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, one of the things that has done is certainly stimulated the development of new uh, healthcare delivery models. And, you know, the patient-centered medical home well predates the Affordable Care Act, but I think has been accelerated as the more accepted uh, model. You've got accountable care organizations, uh, which there hasn't been a tremendous amount of take-up uh, on that concept. So, you know, can you explain to me a little bit about physical therapy within these new delivery models and, you know, what you see the promise of physical therapy in the medical home concept and the medical home model, accountable care organizations, uh, you know, any of these other spontaneous models? Because eventually, and I, I do want to talk about past the, the patient-centered medical home, past the ACO, what kind of uh, organizations that we're going to have delivering care uh, to people in this country. So uh, t- talk to me a little bit about the new delivery models and, and your role and what your organizations are doing. As we talked you know, a couple of weeks ago by phone getting ready for this, and I thought you, know, you really were doing some interesting things and, uh, and showing a lot of leadership. I felt sorry for Tony on the call because, you know, we're in a very hospital and physician-dominated system. And so I said, Tony, you're not going to have a whole lot to say when we start talking about new delivery models. Uh, you may be just opining on it about like I'll be able to, but you're actually doing it. So why don't you share, uh, you know, share some of that with us? Okay. Um, my health system is called the Harris County Hospital District. In Harris County, uh, geographically is larger than the city of Houston. So we cover a large uh, geographical area. There's about 4 million people that live in that area. 1.2 million of those are uninsured. We have the highest number of uninsured uh, in the country. It's a huge challenge for us. So 
my organization is the Safety Net Healthcare System, so uh, we, it's, it's our charge uh, to, to care for those individuals. So as a system, um, uh, the challenge is how do we provide care for those potentially 1.2 million individuals who don't have health insurance? And we're actually going through a name change because Harris County Hospital District doesn't reflect who we are. We're really trying to get out of the hospital business and really focus on primary care. So that's why the medical home model was a really nice uh, match for us. So we have three hospitals and then 14 community centers throughout the Houston area. And uh, in my position at the organization, I'm over rehab services, but I'm also on the senior executive leadership team. So I was asked to lead the organization's effort to seek out uh, level three NCQA recognition for all 14 of our um, community health programs. So that was great for me being a physical therapist because I knew all about the effort, I understood the standards, and I was uh, successful in, in achieving the highest level of recognition for all of our centers. So that positioned me well then for advocating for my, my true love, which is uh, the physical therapy profession. So we see medical homes as, as an answer to a lot of our uh, uh, problems. Uh, we know that if a patient has a primary care physician or a relationship with a primary care doc, they're less likely to access the ECs uh, for care. They have better health. So uh, we felt like this was the best thing that we could do. We have uh, most of our patients come to the EC with primary care conditions because they haven't been encouraged to seek out primary care. So, again, we saw the medical home as something that would really help us um, manage the population better. So then with my physical therapy hat, once we got all the clinics uh, NCQA recognized, I said, well, uh, now, what, what role can physical therapy play? And physical therapy is not specifically mentioned in the NCQA standards. It describes a patient care team. So, you know, we're part of the team. They refer to us in the current model. We get referrals from those clinics, and we treat those patients. But I felt that we needed to formalize our role in those centers because everybody else is jumping on the bandwagon, pharmacists, dietitians, health educators, case managers. So we looked at um, this, some of the uh, burning platform issues within our system. Uh, one is access. Again, uh, 1.2 million people. We can't handle them all. Uh, all of our physicians are fully impaneled. We don't have capacity to take on new patients. 400 patients a day call to try to get an appointment and they can't get in. Uh, and um, then we also know what types of patients are seeking care. We also know that low back pain is our number one musculoskeletal diagnosis. So with that information, we went to uh, the chief operating officer and senior VP for ambulatory and said, uh, hey, uh, we got some serious issues here and physical therapy can provide value and we can help you with those issues. So with that intro, they were very interested in speaking with us <laughs> because we came to them with a the solution. So we started a six-month pilot. We're five months into it. And we took three out of our 14 medical homes and we assigned a physical therapist to be the medical home PT. And medical home is all about establishing a relationship with your provider and, and your patient care team and managing care in a very proactive way. So the first step is really was really to have the PT go to, and, and have everybody at the medical home know that this is your physical therapist. They are here to work under the current medical model and the future medical model. Uh, they're going to embrace the entire population that comes to this clinic, which in our case about 21,000 patients per clinic. And uh, they received us with 
open arms and um, um, have really seen the value of how, what we can do in terms of those musculoskeletal patients and really would like us to be the primary care providers of choice. So more later, but that's, that's kind of the overview and um, how we've inserted ourselves into the medical home. That's terrific. And, and I'll just speak, in, in hearing Carol's story a few weeks ago on the phone, um, <laughs> one of the first things that I said to our rehab director is we've got to figure out what medical homes were starting to crop up in our system as well, and we're trying to figure out how we can play a role. And I said, I know who we need to talk to to, to really find out. And, and the innovative um, programs that we've been a part of, we're not quite sure how they fit into the medical home model. We know that there's a place, but I think what you're doing is outstanding. So, you know, to me, the medical home is kind of a fancy uh, term for doing what you're supposed to be doing anyway. <laughs> um, so there's this real ethereal concept of interprofessionalism going on now. I mean, you really are hearing about it, and it's this, we have a core curriculum around interprofessionalism that's been developed, and you know, I think that's wonderful. I, you know, and, uh, but last time I checked, uh, when somebody is sick, um, it doesn't do a lot of good to have a bunch of people standing around holding hands and looking at the patient. Uh, someone's actually going to have to deliver the care. And so I, I want to talk to you a little bit about interprofessionalism and uh, PT's, uh, you know, kind of role in that development. But um, one of the questions I've got for you is, who are your natural partners? As you start to uh, build the value proposition for physical therapy, um, you know, Tony and I have talked a lot, and, and believe it or not, we have gotten University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, to have its first nurse-managed clinic. Now, it's not the first PT-managed clinic yet, but if you can imagine in western Pennsylvania that there's never, ever been a nurse-managed clinic on May 1st, uh, I convinced the uh, leadership at uh, UPMC uh, to uh, at least try that. And so... Nurses have done quite a good job of advancing themselves within the, the context of health reform. Um, they've been aided by groups like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, and so I, my question to you is, could we ever see the dream that Tony and I have? And I'm going to start with you, Tony, with this question. Could we ever see organizations delivering health care that would be a physical therapist, a pharmacist, a nurse, maybe a dietitian? Can we ever see that being the primary care apparatus for 70% of the population? Could we see models like that develop? I mean, in Pittsburgh, you know, I'll be completely whiteheaded and, uh, and, you know, I'll be gone by the time, you know, that happens in a place like Pittsburgh. But, you know, I, 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 as I'm looking at interprofessionalism, I'm thinking in, in, from a physical therapy standpoint, who are your natural partners? And have there been models of care delivery where physical therapy has aligned themselves? I mean, it seems to me nurses and physical therapists ought to be joined at the hip in this new enterprise of how you're going to be delivering health care. may not be natural. Uh, it may, you know, that's a, t that's a pretty tough profession at advancing uh, their, your, you know, their interest uh, as well. But, um, you know, talk to me a little bit about interprofessionalism from the standpoint of physical therapy and who you think your natural partners from a care delivery standpoint might be. Well, um, I, I, I love your lines about interprofessionalism because it's, uh, it always strikes me that our approach to interprofessionalism is exactly, is exactly what you say. On the educational side, we present cases, we try to bring 
representatives of professions together for an hour. They sit around and talk about how they would manage the cases together. And then everybody goes about their siloed existence in their, in their, in their, uh, whether they're in the education component or whether they're in the, uh, actually in the field. Um, but I, I think um, the, to, to directly address your question about is it feasible or possible to see this dream team, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring something from Jules into this. Um, uh, and I don't know how much of this that Jan had, um, um, uh, but every year when, as an editorial board member, we would get a gift from the, uh, fr- from, the, from the journal. And one time, I still have this gift, it's on my desk. It's a, it's a rock that has a quote on it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an Albert Einstein quote, and, uh, and it's a, in times of trouble, there's opportunity. And, and I think that's what, that's what Carol has actually presented. Um, there's nothing else that could be done in this situation that was presented. And, and a solution to the problem that put the, the physical therapist to the forefront is it, gave, it, gave, it was a natural path to take, and it gave the opportunity to show the value. And then once it's shown, you move on. So you ask yourself, where are these opportunities? Now, I can think of two, th- I can give you two things that I face every day at Pitt, and this will be, uh, uh, this will resonate with Everett. We are an integrated delivery financial system. That's what we are at Pitt. That's our approach. That's what we're going to be. And we f- try to fend for ourselves in this environment, and we do a pretty good job, but it's difficult to show value. It's, it, I have to tell you, it's difficult. Um, what, what, there's, some, there's days I go to work, and, um, and I get really excited about going to work the next day. And one of those days was last week when, when uh, I got to meet with the head of Medicaid in Pennsylvania. Uh, what a phenomenal opportunity exists here. Um, and I don't know that I don't know why I didn't see this before. I just don't know. Um, when, I, when, when, the, when the term low back pain was mentioned to the head of Medicaid, you could just see his face just grow ashen and just look down. Um, and, and one of the problems is they don't even know the extent to which the problem is. They don't even have an idea. They know they're spending a ton of money, but they don't know where, where the problems are. And I hear from our provider side all the time how, first of all, in spite of direct access laws, those patients are restricted most of the time from coming to see us. You know, they have to go to a hospital, you know. I, I'm, this is all sort of news to me. Secondly, the fee schedule is very, is very much not in concert to doing the best things for patients, and we'll just leave it at that, okay? So our access is restricted. They're spending a ton of money on things that they know are not very uh, fruitful. There's an, I would say this is the opportunity. We'll probably make, have a better way of breaking through this system, showing opportunity uh, and, and demonstrating, because all we want to do is get our foot in the door, and then, of course, the next step is to show that you have value. Uh, and and I, you know, I'm not giving up on the other side of the equation, you know, but that, that to me is, is how we do it. Now, sooner or later, someone's going to say, well, how would you do it, right? Well, I'd sure like to start with you know, a combination of, uh, of, of PT and some key other professions, uh, perhaps a nurse practitioner, perhaps a pharmacist, because you have to think of a pharmacist in these situations because when you think of the Medicaid population, they're sick, they have complicated problems, many, many comorbidities. Much of the time, the, the first part of this meeting, before I got to speak, 
three pharmacists got to speak, and all they talked about were the problems with pharmaceuticals in the Medicaid population. So obviously, there's way there's a lot to gain with, with having a pharmacist help to manage this, a nurse practitioner to manage the emerging problems, as well as make liaisons of where to send the patient up when that's needed, because we know that's going to happen, and the PT to manage the, the musculoskeletal and conditions. What about chiropractors? You know... <laughs> I am uh, I'm just trying to do my job here, you know. <laughs> Jules would be proud of me. I, I, yeah, I, I, can, I can feel that it. Good. That was good. But I mean, chiropractors have done an exceptional job of making a defined, well defined value proposition. I mean, it's, it's yeah. mainly fighting with the healthcare system as a, as a mechanism to do it. But um, do you see a natural alignment in that team? Involving chiropractors or be impossible to uh, no. assimilate them into uh, I, that group? I think wherever there's overlap in practice, the card to get into the door is practicing in an evidence-based format. That's, that's what I truly believe. Now, I say that in full confidence that if we were the ones doing it, we would do fine, but we're also realizing our limitations as well as patient preferences. I don't think in our system right now of management or even in the Medicaid system that we can demand, especially with patient-centeredness being a big part of things, that we can demand patients see us, especially when they have preferences that may include chiropractic. And if chiropractic included the evidence-based component, I'll, I'll be frank with everybody here, if you watch a chiropractor, chiropractor practicing in an evidence-based format with back pain and you watch a PT doing it, you're not going to see a whole lot of difference in the things that are done. All right, I can go into this a little bit with some of the experience we've had with uh, uh, and doing some of the work with our, our, uh, our payer in the, in the western Pennsylvania area. But, um, so I, it's, they, it's, but per, they have to come to the door with that card. And, and I'm saying that we would turn away anybody who doesn't come with that card. I don't care what their profession was. And I think you have to go with that mindset. Interprofessionalism and who are, who are your natural partners and do you see... Could businesses be built around uh, these natural partnerships or in a state system like the one you have in Texas? Is, it, is, is that the place to, you know, to try it? I want to talk a little bit more about Medicaid in a minute, but I, you know, I, I appreciate Tony you know, advancing that because uh, it's, it's really in those areas where we have chaos and we have the greatest need that are gonna, you're going to be you're going to have, I think, some receptivity to trying some new things and really aligning yourselves and creating practices that are uh, PT-centric, but, you know, with partners. So talk about the partners. Uh, our natural partners are the uh, physicians, uh, nurses, um, health educators, uh, pharmacists, dietitians. And uh, the model that, that we're pursuing is consistent with some of the medical home concepts, which are um, the care team needs to fully understand their roles, and, and when they um, intervene with the patient, the patient needs to understand who are the various members of their care team and when do I go to one versus another. So it's all based on the relationships and understanding who does what. The model that we're striving for is that in the medical home, and it, it, medical home is more of a philosophical term. Most of the, the 1,500 medical homes in the country are just small physician practices, but we're a little bit out of the norm. Our medical homes are actually community health centers, and some of them are mega centers. So our model is that there's a team of a physician, nurse, PT, pharmacist, diabetic educator, all in one building. 
And when the patient comes for their visit to see their primary care doc, most likely with our patient population, it's complications due to diabetes or hypertension. The goal of the medical home is to take care of that patient's needs right then and there, as opposed to what we currently do. Well, you need to go see so-and-so. Let me make an appointment. Oh, I'm not available till next Thursday. You know, and so we send the patients on this wild goose chase, and their immediate needs aren't met. So the model we're striving to, to achieve is that when the patient comes to the doc, and if their A1C is out of whack or whatever their issue is or they've got back pain, whatever, that physician, while they're there on that visit, will send the patient to the physical therapist or the pharmacist or whoever they need to see that day. And then they make an assessment of the patient and they decide, you know, what is the care plan for that patient. So it's really kind of one-stop shop and take care of their needs and make sure there's a plan before they leave the building. Uh, other partners are, are uh, senior leadership because, again, in our system, the economics are reversed because most of our patients are unfunded. So the more patients we see, the more money we lose. The more patients we see, the more it costs. <laughs> so administration are our partners in the sense that we're, we're showing and proving that we can reduce costs, see more patients, get more people in, and improve outcomes. Now, we've run into a little resistance. So with uh, uh, RN, uh, disease management staff, and case management. So they're partners, but... But they're also competitive. really competitive. They're, they're trying to use the medical home, and they're trying to uh, capitalize on this and promote themselves as, um, you know, the ones that manage everything. And we were in one meeting, and we're told that only RN uh, case managers can educate a patient, and we to pick our mouths up off the floor. So, <laughs> so in these kind of innovative new models, you're going to quickly know who your partners are, and then you're going to need to know who your competitors mm-hmm. are. But having frequent meetings and really getting to know what's in their head helps us understand where they're coming from. So mm-hmm. having that knowledge, we're able to kind of deal with it. But it's not all friendly out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, and I'm going to change directions just a little bit. Um, but when you, when you talk about partnership, because medical home is, is not my area of expertise or nor what I was, I think, invited here to talk about. Um, but when you talk about partnerships, what we were able to do in Portland was form a really interesting partnership with Intel. And most of you guys know, Intel is a very large corporation, and they were facing a problem of, like all large corporations, of rising healthcare costs for their employees, as well as their employees complaining that they weren't getting the value um, that they needed out of their care. And so they approached us along with another community-based hospital system and um, brought in Cigna, which provided um, almost all of the um, insurance for the Intel employees, and asked us to form a collaboration. And the collaboration then developed a couple um, work, what we called value, um, value strings, but care delivery models for low back pain as well as shoulder, hip, and knee. Uh, this work was modeled loosely after the Virginia Mason model that um, most of you maybe uh, that's gotten a lot of press. And um, I think what's happened through this partnership is it's really allowed therapists to work in this advanced practice, to show themselves off as this advanced practice. We see patients. How it works is patients, um, it started with any um, Intel employee that experienced low back or neck or mid-back, as well as shoulder, hip, and knee pain. They would call our clinics directly. They'd be taken through a quick access tool by our front desk staff to um, decide if they were eligible for the program. And once they were eligible, they were offered an evaluation within 24 to 48 hours. And that was one key is, is early access. And um, after that, they were, it was followed up with an education and exercise 
primarily only, it's not only, but um, a focus on education and exercise. These patients were seen for an average, right now we've seen um, the programs combined, we've seen about 350 patients, and our average uh, length of stay is three visits, and they're discharged to their home program. And our outcomes, the data that we've been collecting, um, are, it's pretty impressive. It's, we have 90% of the patients that have called in of those 350 have been offered same-day um, access. 98% of the patients report a high patient satisfaction. Um, 90% of the patients within that average of three visits reported 80% or higher functional improvement. And um, less than, and 100% of them had less than four days lost of work. And so I, I think, again, as we're able to gather more data, one of our goals and what we are already seeing is we're seeing less ED visits, less immediate care visits. We're seeing less imaging, less narcotics. Um, our average number of visits within our system has decreased. And so I think um, that this is, again, highlighting what physical therapists can do in the realm of musculoskeletal care. That's wonderful. Um... You know, we're moving the one thing about the Affordable Care Act and where we are uh, economically in this country, we are really moving into a more population uh, based uh, approach to taking care of people, figuring out how to care for specific populations. Uh, and as I think of physical therapy, I think, you know, there must be some populations where you feel like and can demonstrate that you are the nat- you're, you're, you're one of the natural caretakers for the population. Um, I think to myself of uh, large self-insured corporations. Uh, it seems to me that if you're going to uh, put forth uh, a model like the one you've described with, with, with Intel, um, you know, U.S. Steel, I would imagine, has a, a lot of people with musculoskeletal problems and uh, conditions uh, that, you know, a big, large, self-insured corporation like that has, it's the bottom line for them. I mean, they really uh, have to watch their health care costs, and, uh, you know, that seems like a, a, a kind of a population, if you will. The other, the other population that uh, it seems ripe for physical therapy to me uh, is residents in long-term care settings, uh, and specifically, uh, you know, promoting, you know, I, I, again, I go back to nursing. Nursing has done a pretty good job, and, and, and I want to know, do you have a relationship with, uh, like, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation? Because, you know, I, 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 can, I continue to see these reports of uh, the nurses will come in and say, we're the most beloved profession, we're the most uh, respected profession, and they've got all these studies about how great they are and how much people love nurses. Um, and I just wonder from, you know, the physical therapy standpoint, I mean, I've used physical therapy. I played college tennis, uh, and I've been using physical therapy since I was a teenager. I love my physical therapist, but I've never been asked to do a study about why I love my physical therapist. So, you know, I wonder as you're, like, trying to advance physical therapy, if it helps to, you know, say, in the long-term care settings, we're really best positioned to manage these patients in these settings. So uh, University of Pittsburgh got a uh, Josiah Macy Foundation grant uh, for interprofessionalism. We're going to go back to this very fuzzy, soft term of uh, of interprofessionalism. So when I got to the university, I said, well, I'd love to hear more about this grant. And said, oh, yeah, it's wonderful. We're really 
kumbaya uh, between the between the professions, and you ought to see how it worked. But it basically, you know, I was explaining that it is a physician, a nurse, and a pharmacist going into long-term care settings and managing these patients. And I said, seems to me there's a real missing link here uh, to the needs of the patients and what it is that we're proposing. Uh, and so, you know, let's just talk about that population. Is there some way for physical therapy, as you're defining yourself in the modern healthcare system, to focus on some specific populations where you can really advance the value proposition for physical therapy? Tony. Well, um, if you, again, look at where the opportunity is, um, uh, this is not my area of expertise whatsoever, long-term care facilities, but you'd have to be blind not to know that it's costing a ton of money. And part of the issue is readmissions, people going from these long-term facilities, bouncing into acute care facilities, getting managed, and sent back to the long-term facilities. Um, and so, again, if you, once you get to problems like that and you lay out the problems, uh, you ask yourself the question, can you have something to do with that? Can you, can you, can you um, do something about those kinds of things? And if you can then obviously there should be uh, an opportunity there. I mean, you know, and one of the things that I know people are, are, are after is uh, uh, are, these, are these, the cost of these readmissions. I mean, that's one of the areas that's, that's, that's huge. So again, to me, that, that, that's an opportunity. Um, uh, I don't know if anybody else can, can, can uh, speak to the, you know, it was in those environments, you know, more, more, uh, uh, more definitive. You spend, you spend a lot. Of, I mean, you're you're busy. You're treating patients, and you're you know you're you're, you're trying to deliver the best care you can. But if if you, as I step back from it a little bit, and I see all these professions basically and trying to advance themselves in this new con- context, physicians trying to hold on dearly to the system that they've developed basically since the '30s and '40s, uh, which primarily still exist today, but we're seeing some change out there. Um, you know, maybe it is the Medicaid population. Let's just, let's, just, let's just talk about that, okay? So, and I want to know a little bit more about the Medicaid system in your states and, you know, what it pays for. But, you know, obviously you know if uh, Mitt Romney becomes the next president of the United States, there is a commitment to block granting Medicaid to the states. And I, I believe that they will, uh, he, will do, he will achieve that. Uh, and so now we've gone from a federal state system that's been in place since 1965 um, to every state having control of this budget and control of the care of that vulnerable population. Pennsylvania, we've got 2.3 million people in our Medicaid system. Uh, it's about 45% of the state budget now. Uh, a lot of it goes to, uh, to care, long-term care. We have a, a Elderly population in Pennsylvania, I think, is it second oldest in the uh, in the country. So, you know, first question is: Do you guys lose money on Medicaid? Is it is it is it a bad deal for for physical therapy? Okay. Secondly, with each state having its own challenges related to the budget around Medicaid, doesn't Medicaid it doesn't it become a natural partner? 
for testing these new approaches, uh, you know, taking a, uh, you know, a different look at managing some of these populations. Uh, you know, most of the states are really, they're whacking the, uh, the Medicaid budget. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a trend not only in the states with Republican governors, it's a trend across the country just because of the sheer cost of it. Um, is that a population that you feel that physical therapy could focus on, or is it bad business to focus on that population from a physical therapy standpoint? I think it's a good policy, and if we don't, somebody else will, if we're not uh, at the table. Um, you know, I'm in a unique situation. Um, 60% of our patients don't have any funding, so we love Medicaid. We love Medi- <laughs> Medicaid is a good payer for us. We love it. Um, so, but we're following the, the Medicaid situation very closely with health care reform. So um, in Texas, we, don't, uh, we usually rank last in uh, being able to qualify for Medicaid, and our benefits are very, very poor. You almost have to be destitute to even qualify. And so those individuals in Texas who have Medicaid are moms and kids. So they're considered a funded population in our area, and in fact, uh, one of our strategic uh, business initiatives is to grow pediatrics, and we're starting medical homes for kids. And uh, I've already, with my PT hat, uh, working with our executives, we're going to have a, a outpatient PTOT clinic um, co-located with these new PD clinics. So mm-hmm. in Texas, moms and babies are, are, are funded, and that, that's an area that we think that we need to expand on, and it's the right thing to do. We, we um, political parties aside, health care reform would be a good thing for our community because uh, if it passes, uh, many, uh, many of those 1.2 individuals that don't have anything would at least have Medicaid. And for the health of our community and the health of our population, that would be a good move because then they could go see a doctor. They wouldn't have to go to the ERs, all the ERs in the city and access care. They'd have better health. Uh, they wouldn't get sick and go to all of our shopping malls and schools and, and uh, potentially uh, uh, affect the, the health of our, our community. So we, in Texas, we would like to see more individuals um, become Medicaid eligible and get the services because it would improve the health of our population. I think physical therapists, knowing that, it's critical that we're sitting at the table. Texas just uh, went to CMS and, and asked for a waiver. We're opting out of traditional Medicaid, and CMS approved that. So in Texas, we have something called the 1115 waiver. And uh, we found that if you uh, manage Medicaid population in a, man- a managed care environment, you have better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we're moving totally toward Medicaid managed care. And so with this waiver, we're building our infrastructure, building these new PD clinics, building clinics in our area so that if all these additional patients get Medicaid, we'll have the capacity to care for them. So uh, in Texas, it's really vital to the Mm -hmm. health of our state. And I think that uh, PTs really do have a role because I think that we're the experts and have a lot to contribute in how do you better manage the health of our patient population. We, you know, that, that's, that, that's terrific. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of focus on the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation. Everybody's got some proposal in there. I think we had 12 go in from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, that really is a fairly finite 
uh, opportunity for researchers and practitioners to, you know, demonstrate. Uh, I just, you know, I feel like Medicaid may be the, the sleeper here for pilots and demonstration projects. So, Tony, we set the meeting up with the chief medical officer for, and the head of Medicaid uh, last week, and Tony's going to be working with them to actually define the disease burden. Uh, around low back pain and I think knee pain is what we agreed to agreed to do there and then I think that will set Tony up to recommend some uh, some pilots and demonstrations but you know what about Oregon what what about the Medicaid system there I'm going to narrow the scope just a little bit one of the initiatives we've worked on with the Medicaid population it it hasn't been limited to the Medicaid population but we have been focusing on our persistent pain population and uh, we've done a lot of work uh, in the last year and we found in our um, emergency departments, in our immediate care, that the frequent flyers, which we define as um, people visiting the ED more than five, five times in a calendar year, um, the majority of them are a musculoskeletal pain. Yeah, dental pain, I think, is a little bit higher, and then headaches and migraines. And outside of that, it's back pain and a different musculoskeletal pain. We are working hard on developing, and, and again, talking about collaborative relationships with partnership, if we tie it into that conversation also, as physical therapists, we are leading this large charge in our system to develop a way to better treat our patients with persistent pain. And we are developing programs to help. And, and what's been so interesting is the primary care physicians are singing our praises. Because at the same time that this is going on, um, our system is really putting pressure on our primary care physicians to stop pre- um, prescribing narcotics. And so now you've got these patients, you've got these physicians with these patients in front of them saying, I'm not going to give you any narcotics but I don't have anything else to offer you. And what we're offering is we're offering, um, we're creating an educational video um, for patients. We are um, offering free community classes on what is persistent pain, and um, we're also offering, it's a two-part class, a second-part class gives patients a few things that they can work on at home. And these are open, the majority of the patients that are attending these are our Medicaid Mm -hmm. patients. Um, And so, anyway, uh, just to, to conclude this, our we haven't limited this to Medicaid, but we know that we have to start treating, um, because our reimbursement isn't great with the Medicaid population, that we have to start treating these patients a little bit different. And, and in our organization, the physical therapists have, are leading this charge, and we've figured out a way um, to at least better handle. We're treating them as a group in these classes. For those that still need some additional care, they can move on in our system and, and receive that. I want to go back. I, I wish I, I had remembered this when it was my turn to speak on long-term care, but um, I remember the, one of the first times I met Everett when he came in to see us, um, I got the, the political side of Everett coming in. Um, and this is, this is in a, I'm saying this in a positive light. Um, he said, he, to, he made the statement that um, uh, Pencil, the state of Pennsylvania institutionalizes older people at a higher rate than any state in the country. I think that's what you said. Eighty percent go to uh, nursing homes. So we, our, our goal was to rebalance the system to 50-50. I think Oregon is well beyond that, but we're still stuck right at 80 percent. Eighty percent of the elderly go, uh, go to nursing homes in Pennsylvania. And I, and I think if, if, you're, if your mindset is such that you're thinking about how to better manage 80% in that population, I think you're missing the boat. I think from my perspective, if the mindset is how do we transition care so that, there, so that 40% of that 80% aren't going into homes, and then you realize that you're trying to keep people at home, 
I think that opens up a lot of opportunity for physical therapy. You know, activating people, making them, get, getting them, uh, you know, in other words, if, if the solution to the problem is to move the people out of institutions, then maybe the, the opportunity for us is to help in that transition, not necessarily to manage people better in the present system that's going on, because we already know that that's, uh, that's a model that is not sustainable. I mean, that's obviously. I mean, I think this, I mean, that's going to save a fortune for the states if, if you keep people out of the nursing homes. And I, you know, I know physical therapy is a perfect place to manage these patients as long as you get them early enough. So I'm going to ask one final question, uh, and then I'm going to ask you to also start uh, taking on Jules' uh, role of, uh, of doing some probing. And, and, and so a lot has been made on reducing readmissions. Okay, there's a whole lot of federal uh, initiatives built around, and I'm sure your folks in the association are, are monitoring this uh, at CMS pretty closely. Um, and when I, when I say, you, know, you call it transitions of care, I mean, that's really what the program is, is, is based on. But so, again, in my job, I've got all six schools of the health sciences. So I really have gotten, I, I think, a pretty decent perspective on you know, each profession's viewpoint on what natural role it plays. Well, the pharmacists say we should be at the patient's bedside when they are getting ready to be discharged from the hospital because the majority of what they have to have is somebody to manage their medication. So medication therapy management is their, you know, it's, that's their path to, uh, you know, their role in, a, in the new healthcare environment. Nurses say, hold on a second. We understand the whole patient. Clearly, we should be the one in charge of discharge planning. And when those patients get out into the community, we should be the one managing these patients. So my question to you is, in terms of, you know, keeping people out of nursing homes is great. Keeping people from returning unnecessarily to the hospital is also a very important piece of this puzzle. but where is physical therapy's point of contact with these patients? How do you become the manager for these patients when they get discharged from the hospital and go out into the community? Where is that opportunity to be there? Because everybody is fighting to be part, being part of the discharge planning process so they can get the patient when they go out into the community. I mean, personally, I think this is wonderful. Because patients are, are, not get, are no longer going to be sent out uh, with, you know, no game plan, no follow-up, you know, no real understanding of their care or the medications or, or, or any of that. So I think this is a great development that we're, that we're seeing. My question now is where does physical therapy fit into the readmissions picture in terms of how are you going to manage these patients that you could best manage when they get discharged from the hospital and get put out in the community? Uh, in our model, um, I, I believe it's the physical therapist who is, is an integral member of that medical home. So that is their 22,000 patients, whether they're treating them directly or, or not. And so that's the home base. So if a patient from that medical home ha- has a stroke and has to be hospitalized, what the model that we're implementing, and I'm making my staff real nervous, um, so we have hospitals. So if a patient, for example, from Strawberry Health Center has a stroke and they're admitted to Bentob Hospital, uh, they're going to have a different therapist. They're going to have an acute care therapist managing their care. If the patient is discharged from that level of care, the acute care PT comes up with the discharge plan, is at bedside, making sure they have equipment, etc. 
But what we're doing is making sure they make a handoff back to the medical home PT. And this is the emotional part that they really love me. They really, they really like this. So they have to decide what's important about that patient. What is the patient, the PT that really is that patient's primary PT need to know about this stay? You know, they had a, they had a very non-eventful course. They responded well to therapy. Fair, family's very supportive. Uh, they actually don't need outpatient therapy, but you may want to check on this patient in 30 days and just make sure they're doing okay, make sure they're doing their home program. So we believe every, every patient should be funneled back to the medical home, and we're fortunate that we have a large system with electronic medical records, so it's easy for us to communicate with our partners at the other facilities. Um, similarly, if a patient is admitted to skilled nursing or geriatrics, those therapists have the same obligation to call their medical home PT. And then it's reversed. If we have a patient that's being seen at the medical home that, that we know needs to be hospitalized or something, that PT should contact their colleague at the hospital and have a handoff. So we're really trying to move the model to where we really do care about these patients in the sense and, and want to track them throughout the continuum. We don't want them to fall through the cracks. Uh, and, and really it comes down to are we making really good handoffs to our colleagues and ultimately making sure they get back to their home base. Relay race. The handoff is critical or there's no race. Any thoughts? And I'll, well, I'll just say that I think the model, Carol, that you've worked out is, is a brilliant one. And I, I think the two things that you highlight are, are really two, the handoff. Um, I, I don't think we've done a good job of that in the past. And I, and I think I even work for a large system that our handoffs between our own outpa- or inpatient to home health to outpatient is really disjointed. Um, and, and then I think having an electronic medical record that will support that. I mean, if we can accomplish those two things, we should be able to put ourselves right there leading that charge. I, I can um, speak from our, uh, our system, and um, uh, we have the same challenges in our system. And I'll add a third challenge, and that's, um, and that's a little bit of professional jealousy on the part of uh, certain uh, uh, other physician providers who insist on taking on that role. Um, and, you know, they're the ones that get the consult, and I'm sure they get paid for it. And they're the ones that visit the patient, and the first thing they look for is the PT note about what to do, with the, what to write in their consult. And then they do it, and sometimes they don't even do a good job of doing that. And, uh, and that's been a real, real frustration in our system on the part of our acute care therapists. Um, and it's, uh, uh, so far it's been a, you know, it's hard to fight City Hall problem. Well, I think, you know, going back to Medicaid or just working with a payer, I mean, I think the payer is going to have to drive some of this change, right? I mean, we're not going to count on kumbaya to really work. Uh, And, you know, you may may be able to do that with the folks you're graduating now, but we have a healthcare system, as we all know, with uh, a lot of people that have been doing it the, you know, the way we've been delivering care for some time. So I'm going to open up a a question to the audience and then start to let you all uh, you know, give me some, give me some thoughts uh, and, and ask some questions as well. Um, so the, there's a, a lot of discussion now around payment bundling, creating episodes of care. Usually it's termed now, what, three days uh, you know, prior to uh, hospitalization to 30 days after and defining care around, uh, I think most of the work is now being done around hip replacement, knee replacement, easily defined cataract surgery, uh, you know, easily defined episodes of care. So Rand did a study uh, that showed of all the things in healthcare reform, payment bundling holds the greatest promise 
to cost, cost control, cost reduction. I think they, their figure was somewhere around 5.5% if payment bundling was instituted um, across the, uh, the, the most natural and costly conditions. You know, I see that the American Physical Therapy Association is, is, has an alternative payment system that's uh, it's being promoted. Uh, it's basically taking the, the crazy system we have and better defining it around, is it three examination and nine intervention codes? Um, you know, when I think about that, that I, I, I think it's, that'll bring clarity to the system, but that still seems to me to be the system. It's still a fee-for-service model. And so, you know, I, I would like to hear your thoughts about, have you looked at payment bundling? Does payment bundling fit with physical therapy? Is there a way to be, because this is basically what Tony's, I know this is where Tony's going with the Medicaid program. After he does the groundwork and they, he becomes their hero for defining, you know, how they're going to, you know, manage these costs better, his next recommendation is that we create some bundled payment approaches around certain conditions and that the physical therapist will receive this bundle for managing these, these patients. So uh, let, me, let me just, you know, hear from the audience. I guess there's a microphone in the middle. Yeah, do you, do you, before you go there, yes, I please. Think you're missing, I think you're missing. Go to the microphone. Go to the microphone. Say who you are and where you're from, please. I'm Jim Roush from Arizona. Great. And, and I, I, I think you're missing some things. First of all, you asked the question, who are two group, Who are the groups that were natural partners? I think you lost. You missed two. You missed the social workers. That if the tsunami that's coming really does come. We are really going to need those guys. And as an individual practicing home health for 10 years before going into academics, mm-hmm. I can tell you, if I didn't have a good social worker, I was dead. The second group is physician assistants, mm-hmm. who's right now are restricted in their practice because they have to work under, the, uh, under a physician, which is okay, but all we have to do is just change the law a little bit and give them some more autonomy mm-hmm. in how they do it. But here's the deal. We're, going, we're counting on nurses. We don't have enough of them. We really need nurse practitioners. We don't have enough of them. So we're going to have to expand another area, mm-hmm. okay? And there aren't enough physical therapists for the tsunami that's coming. Now, we're also missing something else, too, and that is the use of technology. And that is that we're going in a direction where we're going to have more telemedicine We're going to need to have more telephysical therapy Mm -hmm. for us to go ahead and and be able to deal with those things. So as before you go into, okay, how is bundling? Because guarantee right now, 2% of the entire budget right now that we have, and that's 2% of $2.5 trillion is what we're doing right now in terms of outpatient physical therapy, outpatient rehabilitation services. That's all outpatient that's a small sliver in the pie for something that's $2.5 trillion. So we need to think of, if we're going to really address this, we can't think of that small sliver in the pie we, because we won't have a dent. We've got to think even bigger than that. How are we going to go ahead and keep people at home when they're over the age of 65 or the age of 75? How are we going to keep them mobile so that they can thrive in their house, in their home, and not go anywhere else? Or how are we going to be able to go ahead and redirect those individuals to live in communities that's more supportive than what we have now? I think we got to go ahead and address those issues too, because Tony, with all due respect, 
taking care of people that have low back pain and hip pain and knee pain in terms of this entire tsunami, it, we, we won't make a dent. Well, I think, I, think, I think one of the things you have to think about... Thank um, you. I, I think one of the things you have to think about is what's low-hanging fruit and where can we have an impact. Um, I, I have to disagree with you about uh, the impact of low back pain. It's become one of the highest cost uh, buckets in just about mm-hmm. any, anything that you talk to, anyone you talk to. Um, and Especially it, something that... You know, there's there's a million ways. I mean, there, there's it's a, there's a lot of money wasted yeah. in treating low back pain. I think right. that's the main thing around it. I mean, you know, there you know, cancer is you know treat, so, treatment of cancer is you know most of it is necessary. Right. Uh, there's plenty that's not, but around low back pain is an area where there's a lot of waste, uh, and that's addressing that waste. I think is is what's key about that area. So so you pick your spots, you pick your opportunities. I mean, I don't think anybody in this room is thinking they're going to go after that trillion dollars and say you're going to you know this our profession's going to come in here and, and and solve the world. You pick the pieces and you pick your battles. And your first step in picking battles is, you know, you know, number one, where are they spending a lot of money? <laughs> and number two, what can, where's, where does it coincide to what, you know, where we can save that money? And especially, you know, picking up on Everett's point, if you can get people to stop using unnecessary services, uh, you know, which is what's happening. So that's sort of the perfect storm for us. And, you know, I, I don't know what, if we optimize our system, use PT, and everything works out the greatest we can think of it, I don't know what kind of dent that's going to make in this trillion-dollar thing. All I know is for average employers, for uh, uh, average payers, when you, when you tell them you're going to reduce their low back pain costs, you've got an audience. You've got an audience just like that. You tell them you're going to have an impact on reducing readmissions, you've got an audience. These, these opportunities have already been defined. Some of them may not have anything to do with, or may not have anything to do with PT in a sense that maybe we can help, but it's not that big of an impact. That's not low-hanging fruit. That's, that's stuff we can do in the future, but, but there's plenty of low-hanging fruit. I, mean, I think, unfortunately, we all become incrementalist in healthcare. I mean, it just, you've got to figure out those places where you can get some traction. No doubt that, uh, that your challenge of you know, getting and managing, I, to me, it's, it's physical therapy-led teams. I mean, that, that is what I'm, I'm starting to, my mind is starting to come around is what's a, what's a physical therapy-led team mean and how does it work and how do you put that into practice? And then most importantly, how do you create an evidence base that that is actually working? So this is where I think nurse managed clinics, they're out of the gate pretty quick here and they're starting to really do some work, especially around the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. I think they've got 11 nurse managed clinics that, the, that they've started there. I mean, they're really starting now to look at the outcomes data and look at the cost and starting to define that. Uh, and so to me, you know, a physical therapy led team taking in social workers and using EHR and all the things that you've described, you know, where does that fit into the, into the matrix? And sure, I, you know, there's no reason why that shouldn't be 10% because you're talking about managing patients with chronic disease, which is 70%, 75% of health cost uh, is associated with that. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on, on any of this or we can talk about money. I was trying to get into a money discussion, but uh, that, you, 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 made, you made some excellent points and certainly appreciate your, your, your comments. Uh, Jim Dunleavy from New York. I love talking about money. Um, <laughs> 
and and this is this is a money question, and that is, uh, in in the experiences that you're having now, and the way you're setting up your systems, have, have you had a discussion um, relative to? And I'm thinking more lines of uh, the Medicaid population, because um, we see we see almost 40 percent are Medicaid, and um, their comorbidities comorbidities tend to be much higher. Uh, than other insured type populations, <clears throat> have you have you looked at the concept within within the episodic billing or other types of billing of of providing maintenance services? And, and I'm thinking of it along the lines of uh, being the, the other end of the spectrum in terms of keeping people out of the ED and keeping people out of readmission. Certainly, our prevention and wellness. Uh, stuff is great, but but I know from my experience with this population, they they tend to need more of a, a, a access to maintenance in a lot of ways. So I'd like to hear your comments on that. Sure, um, we're looking into that as part of the eleven fifteen Medicaid waiver, and um, CMS has told us that one of the um, caveats of, of allowing us the waiver was that they wanted to see programs and new initiatives that made them go, wow. They don't want to see the same old thing. So that's exactly what we're looking for in terms of managing that Medicaid population, whether it's maintenance or, or um, uh, higher levels of care. And so right now, we're, we're having those discussions. Who should those care providers be? Should it be a social worker? Should it be a disease case manager? Should it be a nurse? Should it be a PT? So we're having those discussions now to determine who should be the best provider. And, you know, logically, it would seem to me that if it's a, a population that had, you know, a lot of um, musculoskeletal disorders or, you know, pediatric population with developmental disabilities, it would make sense that the PT would be the team lead, if you will, or the care coordinator. So those are the concepts that we're talking about in our state because we have to do things differently. And I think you know, care coordination seems to be what Medicaid is looking for us to do. We're just trying to decide you know, how, to, how to make that structure work and who should be the appropriate care provider for different so groups what, of people. Once you define the appropriate care provider, though, are we talking about new billing codes? Are we talking about new ways of paying for this? I mean, are you, have you started to really engage in that kind of analysis yet? Uh, we are. It's, it's real complicated. Uh, we're trying to understand. We're writing the rules now, actually. Mm -hmm. The state's trying to write the rules. But so what we understand, there'll be uh, basically a, a still a fee-for-service model, but because we have a waiver, the payments that we're currently getting for hospitalization or therapy, outpatient therapy, the payments will actually be greater. So, again, we expect to do well in, in the current fee-for-service model. The models that you're proposing, these innovative ways of care, um, they're calling those DISRIPs. Uh, it's, 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 it's an acronym for innovative programs that they would pay basic, basically in a bundling way. If you come up, we'll pay you, there's a patient population of X, we'll pay you so much per member per month for the case manager, that team to manage the patient, and that's how much you're going to get to manage them on an annual basis. So we're looking at two forms of payment with the current Texas waiver. What about the UPMC health plan project? Yeah, uh, uh, Jim, there's a couple of things. One, we have, um, uh, since January 1st, we've had a, a bundle for uh, our commercial UPMC health plan uh, product. And it's, rel it's, it's, it's uh, relevant to your question because when I was, uh, believe me, this, this, uh, this happened um, 
uh, this, I don't want anybody in this audience to think that this happened because of me. Uh, it didn't. It happened as a completely independent component of the health plan that came up with the bundle while another part of the health plan that I've been working with we're talking about a bundle. In fact, we had actually submitted a grant to AHRQ to uh, develop, to, to, and it was a method of coming up with a bundle that included the provider as well as the payer working together and agreeing upon it. And then all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, out of a different part of our payer, uh, decided to, uh, in, in November to come to us and say, we'd like to talk about a bundle and we'd like to start it on, um, on January 1st. And they did. And my thought process in going through that was, as soon as the bundle was, was given to us, was they were going to give us a certain amount of money to take care of people. And we were going to be on the hook for those people, regardless of comorbidities and everything else. Now, I, I don't want people to think, there is absolutely no question in my mind that we could do well with this bundle economically. And, and, and I am tired of listening to the people who say, Oh, my God, you know, we have some patients that come in, they have this comorbidity, they have that comorbidity, but they never talk about the patient that comes in and you only have to see one or two times. And you're getting way overpaid for that person based on your past experience, right? And, and what, the, what the health plan offered us was a very, very fair bundle, okay, uh, and that, it, that, that I'm, I'm very excited about, and it's been in place since the first. Now, what do we do with these other people? Uh, well, to me... Um, I think the value of PT is not in delivering the service cheaper than you've done it before at that point in time. The value is in the shared saving, in the downstream savings that you cause. And if that is where you're going to show your value, then how do you change how you manage these people? Well, it's got to include maintenance. If you know that two of the problems that you have in back pain are recurrence rates that are, out of the, that, that are way too high, you know, and they are the ones costing us money, and a transition to chronic, which is another thing that costs us money, why not intercept these patients at all these aspects, even when, even though you're not going to get, quote-unquote, paid for it, but you're going to be recognized because if they come back and see you, and because of the bundle, it's not costing anybody anything, and you're managing them in a, in a, in a way that's there's, there's maintenance going on, yes, but, but, you know, they're not going someplace else where they're going to get maybe run into a needle jockey and do something, maybe they're going to run into somebody who's going to order an MRI, all this useless stuff that you know is bound to happen if you let the patient do it. When they're in our territory, that doesn't happen. And most of the time, we can be reasonably effective in managing flares, managing other sorts of things. So, so you know, the mentality we have of, oh, my God, we're going to get stuck with that patient, maybe we ought to switch that to, holy cow, bring them to us, because that's a better way to show our value. But, but, but our mindset is such, and I find this to be really difficult, our mindset is such that, you know, what are we going to do with that patient? And that's going to kill us economically. That's always how we think, you know. Now, to be honest, this is where we have this very enlightened payer on our side. You know, this was brought up when the bundle was first brought to us. And this was brought up by our financial people. And, that, and legitimately so. That's their job. You know, they're going to sit there and say, what if this patient comes back, Right. The payer is so interested in seeing the results of this bundle that they came to some agreement that they would actually start a new bundle after a certain period of time, things like that. Things that if I were in, you know, I had to keep my mouth shut because I'm wearing the hat on the side of the, yeah, yeah, bring the money in, right? But on the other hand, if I was really wearing the health plan ad, I, you know, I might be tempted to say, that's your problem. Manage it. You know, and, and, and would be especially incentivized me, what would especially incentivize me is 
give me the bundle, but then let's talk at the end of the year about the money we saved and see if there's some way to share some of that savings, which in a value-based insurance design, that's a legitimate thing to do. That is a very legitimate thing to do. You know, some of the more enlightened payers that are looking at value-based insurance design, shared savings is something that, that they look at. You know, and I'll just give you, um, I want to just, just bear with me a minute because the, you know, the brain trust behind our, our um, Centers for Rehab Services at the University of Pittsburgh, and, and Paul Rocker and everybody present would agree with this, was Rick Bowling. And, you know, Rick Bowling passed away in 2002, but he was the person who really orchestrated the Centers for Rehab Services, set it up, and was our first CEO. Before he did that, I remember walking into, uh, he, was, he, he was a community-based practitioner, and um, he walked, I walked in with him to the medical director of U.S. Steel, and U.S. Steel was spending a ton of money on back pain, and he wanted the business. And... Uh, and we sat down with this medical director, and I was there as the sort of data guy, you know what I mean? And I was sitting down, ready to give him all the things we were going to do that was all evidence-based at the time. And when it came time to talk, the medical director said two things. The first thing he said was, well, why not? He says, we're doing such a bad job, you can't do it much worse. That was the first thing he said to us. Then when he said about, when he talked about payment, right, um, Rick, Rick's statement to him was, just give me half of what you save. You don't have to pay me a penny. Just give me half of what you save. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take him on on that. So, so you know, and all, that, all I bring that up for is that skin in the game, that's risk that you have to take. And, it's, and I'm saying don't just take your risk about, you know, with your very narrow scope about seeing the patient in that time frame. But if there's, if there's money to be saved, talk about shared savings. And there are mechanisms to doing that. There are, this is not, you wouldn't be reinventing the wheel here. Yep. Pete McMenamin uh, from Chicago. Uh, two questions, actually. I'll ask them and then I'll sit down because they're a little bit on different uh, wavelengths. Uh, one uh, is for you, I guess, Tony, on the uh, chronic back pain. And maybe uh, for you also, Carolyn. The, um, a lot of the chronic and, and episodic repeated back pain patients are chronically depressed or, or have psychological issues. And I think that's one of the concerns of people who are in HMO, capitated plans, and then the primary practice uh, physicians would dump all of their chronic pain patients back to the PT, and so it was kind of a ping-pong game back and forth. Well, we're done. They've had their five visits. Back to the primary care, and then back to the PT again, that kind of thing. So how do you deal with that um, depression, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, kind of uh, dependency on practitioners kind of mentality. The second question, totally different wavelength, is nobody's talked about uh, the last year of life, uh, which is a huge cost uh, center of, of our healthcare system and is out of control in many ways. Now, hospice has, is obviously the solution and both, I lost both my parents in the last three years, my mom just very recently. They were both uh, in home hospice care and both died at home. And we have big family, uh, 12 kids, and, which includes an MD, a PT, uh, three lawyers, uh, two MBAs, uh, an accountant, and so on down the line. So, you know, we all collaborated to make sure they didn't get excessive care and unnecessary procedures and all that. So it was really great. We saw hospice at its best, and it worked very well. How does, and I think that would be a case where maybe the nurse practitioner is going to be the, you know, the team leader, 
And I, I think for, in different circumstances, different team leaders would be in there. But I'd like to hear your comments about uh, the last year of life and then, and then also about the, back, the depressed back patient. Thank you. Well, I can, I'll be real short. This is uh, uh, <laughs> probably one of the paradoxes in, 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 that we talk about uh, uh, in healthcare, and I know I'm going to hang out some dirty laundry here, but um, I don't think there's a, for, we have the highest funded psychiatry department in the country, NIH funded psychiatry department, and depression is a big part of what they do. We still have probably anywhere from 20 to 30 percent undiagnosed depression coming into our primary care settings, right, right in front of our noses, mm-hmm. right in front of our noses. So, all right, so that's our problem. All right, what would we do about it? I've done enough studies to realize that this is an issue, and if you don't address it in your study section, you're going to get hammered. There are, there are scales to detect depression, very simple scales to administer. Not only that, you can go on the Internet, Google management programs for depression that people can follow without to say you have to go to a psychiatrist if, you, you know, if the person is not. But most of the people will do well with those, those approaches. Somehow that has to get implemented. Now, I don't care who implements it, whether it's the nurse practitioner, whether it's whatever. Obviously, we can't because we don't prescribe things. But, but the screen, I think we would be on the hook for if we were the primary person seeing the patient. So, again, it gets to one of those issues. It's like uh, I'm sure Eddie talked about it this morning about the toolbox and what you use when you're – if you're one of these people who's seeing people on a primary basis and you're not screening for depression, maybe you ought to think about screening for depression when we know it's running at a rate of 20 to 30 percent in, in primary care settings, okay? So that's, that's, that's my spiel about that. As far as um, end of life, um, I'll just make a, you know, a, a blunt statement. When the, um, when the problems of our integrated system came up and end of life and readmissions came up, my, my sort of focus went to readmissions. I don't know, and maybe that's just because I don't know what we have to offer in end of life, and I don't know if another profession, if, if another profession just doesn't do it better. I know OT jumped on the end of life stuff. They thought that that was where their bailiwick was. You know, so um, that might be an area where I've, I think, for the most part, um, I don't know if we have a, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know if that's a, that's a real opportunity for us there. I know it's a problem. I'm not denying it's a problem. Depression is a huge issue in our patient population, and with um, under the medical home standards, you have to declare your first, second important conditions, ours are diabetes, hypertension, and then you have your third one has to be a uh, uh, unhealthy lifestyle um, condition. And so our docs were kind of debating between obesity and depression, and uh, they picked obesity because they'd rather deal with obesity than depression. Uh, so. <laughs> But the, lights uh, the, 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 the incidence of depression the in our primary care patients is very, very high. So, and, and we are probably underfunded compared to you in our behavioral health uh, services. But what, what we're trying to do is embed behavioral uh, health therapists in our medical home physically to where, again, they're on site. So the primary doc can identify those patients and, and make a referral. We're trying to get them to do the screening. But, you know, quite frankly, there are certain things our primary care docs just they're not comfortable with, and the the access issues are so great trying to manage diabetics and and hypertensives that they don't really want to manage that population. So so we're trying to embed uh, therapists in the in the centers. We also have a uh, 
uh, chronic pain clinic, but those are failures. Those are the ones that get on down the line. Now, PT's helping with uh, depression of our low back patients by trying to get to them early. You know, our patients, uh, when they come to the doctor, they don't have uh, vacation time or sick time. They don't get paid. So if they had a, a predisposition to depression, it can get worse if they're having to come to the doctor or come to therapy and get treated for this condition. So we try to, our, our little part, it's a very small part, is to work with our docs to make sure we get those patients early on so we can get them better, quicker, back to work, and then they can manage their underlying depression with a behavioral uh, health specialist. So very, very challenging in, in our health system. Palliative care, you know, we're exploring that more because it fits in well with the medical home concept. Medical home is lifespan. You follow your patient from the, the, the second that baby comes for their first well, well visit at the medical home to end of life. And so, again, we have the advantage, I know, because we're a large health system and have a lot of components, but we've developed palliative care teams. And so we have geriatricians that lead the team, uh, and they're, they're staffed by nurses and, and other providers. But we're, you know, um, so we, ad we address that with the palliative care team and starting to explore hospice and other um, avenues to um, help with that. And I can speak um, just to the depression. I, I mentioned our persistent pain project that we are piloting, and we have known from the beginning that behavioral health, a partnership with behavioral health is crucial for us. And, and we've developed those partnerships, and part of our funding for a pilot is going to um, embedding in some of our educational classes and in different components, um, behaviorists, whether it's Psych D or whether it's just a behaviorist um, in our classes as well as throughout our program. And we are also screening for depression um, as patients come in. And so I, I think you're right. It, it's a huge um, thing that we have to be picking up on and addressing because what we know and what we've seen from the treatment of these pain patients that if we ignore the depression issue, we're not getting anywhere. Good point, Richard. All right, I'm going to just, please. Uh, Peter's question just made me think about this. I'm Nancy White from APTA staff. Is the, um, we've talked with some primary care physicians about their difficulty determining the appropriate course for these musculoskeletal patients. And these models very often put them in the center of that. And we've had conversations about the need for decision support tools on how to manage these musculoskeletal patients as they come in. Who needs a surgeon? Who needs a psychiatrist? Who needs a physical therapist? Who needs a health educator? Or who needs fitness? And, and what do you see as the role for, for physical therapists or possibly APTA sections in starting to develop some of these decision support models that can help provide some guidance on that? I, I'm... I has, I'm, a, I'm a little hesitant here, but I'm going to go anyway. Um, I just went through an ordeal with, um, um, I, I think I'll, I can name them, Up to Date. Do you, are you guys familiar with Up to Date? Up to Date is a, 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 it's a, it's a company that, for the most part, puts out uh, updated, evidence-based approaches to, um, to all these different conditions, primarily directed toward primary care physicians. And they wanted to know how to go through a decision support. They really were looking for what you're asking for, decision support for how to prescribe exercise for people with low back pain. And five or six times over the last six months in my dealing with them, I had to stop myself from saying, just refer them to a PT. You know, it gets, it gets to that point. Um, now, I'm familiar with medical training. I'm familiar with how people are going through medical training. Uh, I've, it's the rare physician who, who really even wants to spend the time to get to that level 
of granularity in terms of how to send it out. So, um, you know, so I guess the, the issue for me is um, how long do we keep doing this where we come up with these tools, even if it meant now decision support from the standpoint of somebody's going to have a tablet in their hand, have the, back pain, have the person with back pain in front of them, and, and go through it. You know, I, I don't know if I see physicians doing that. Now, maybe their extenders would do it. Maybe something designed for a PT, a, a physician's assistant, or some sort of uh, extender of care. Uh, maybe that would be a, a somewhat of a worthwhile tool. But but I don't know what else it where it does, where it leads you except to you know get them in the hands of somebody who knows how to how to manage that case. Yeah. We we don't have algorithms per se, but it's the relationship that we've created with our PTs and primary care docs. So there's been a lot of education, and we're at the point where. I mean, you know, so they don't necessarily want to go an algorithm if it's if, if if they have low back pain or a musculoskeletal issue, they they want to refer to us for us to do that due diligence. Now, the one algorithm that we did agree upon was um, uh, several years ago. We had a challenge. Our per before we had good relationships with the primary care docs or established relationships with them, they got a patient with low back pain. They would refer them to the orthopedic surgeon. In our system, it might take three months to get to the orthopedic surgeon. When they got there, they were non-surgical. They'd write an order for PT. That's another month. And so we had an acute patient who's now chronic. And anyway, so what we did, recognizing that problem, we, we met with our two chiefs of orthopedics and the primary care docs and said, look, let's, let's stop this. So the one algorithm that we do have is if the doc has a patient and they know that it's non-surgical, don't refer to orthopedic surgery. So that's really the one algorithm that we have. If, if, if they know it's surgical, which, you know, we've got to keep it simple. If it's surgical, they refer to orthopedic surgery. Um, and in our system, again, because, we're, you know, the more we see, the more we lose, our orthopedic surgeons only want to see patients that are viable candidates they can cut on. They don't want to see low back patients. So they're happy with it. Uh, primary care is happy with it. Then they refer immediately to PT, and the patient's happy because they can get well quicker, and uh, and, and we can treat them in an acute care uh, setting. So in our setting, they, they, they just want to know where really two things, orthopedic surgeon, yes, no, PT, yes, no. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say not, not all parts of the healthcare system lend themselves to checklists and uh, and decision support tools. I mean, that's that's a part of the equation. I think it's great in the, in the operating room. Um, but, you know, I think there are other, you know, other components of the solution. So, uh, you know, I know others have talked this week with you all about comparative effectiveness research. Um, we really believe at Pitt that this is a good movement, uh, allowing, uh, you know, to take the evidence base because, you know, we, physical therapy is all about evidence-based care delivery. Um, but I, I guess, you know, one thing I would ask you all is, you know, there's, there's evidence base and then there's really scientifically well-designed, well-thought-out, well-evaluated evidence base. And I think as we're going through now these new delivery models, you know, I, I see comparative effectiveness research and the money that this Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute is going to be getting perhaps, uh, you know, I don't know, it, the, uh, I, I see the medical device uh, tax is, uh, is, 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 is trying to be thrown out. I'm sure the tax on the providers to pay for comparative effectiveness research will be the next, uh, you know, one of the next target. But let's just say this all survives and we actually get a, um, a real funding base around comparative effectiveness research. Um, that, to me, seems like a wonderful opportunity for physical therapy, uh, especially, you know, surgical versus non-surgical interventions comparing uh, in that context. Um, 
Because, you know, as I'm listening to this, the only thing I'm concerned about is you got all these providers doing this really cool stuff and, you know, pushing the envelope and you know, trying new things. But the providers that aren't associated with the Tony Delito that do not have all these methodologists and, you know, scientists. I mean, we, we realized even at Pitt that we didn't have the capacity to actually give a researcher access to the data. So we created a comparative effectiveness research data center. So I put some money up and we've hired some people to basically get Medicaid, Medicare, Premier, you know, other large data sets Hal's in one place. We've got methodologists we've hired to interface with the researchers so we can help them design their studies and, um, you know, learn how to manipulate the data, work with these large data sets, because that's really what's required. I mean, whether it be decision support or CER, it's about data. This is all about presenting the data. Uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking at an institution like ours with a lot of resources, you know, we put something like that together, we're going to support our researchers in that. But to be honest with you, a lot of the innovation is not happening in a hospital system with 20 hospitals, 10 nursing homes, its own insurance company. And I mean, we, you know, we're, we're, we're a lot of what we do is advancing what's already happening in healthcare. And I see the innovations occurring in some of these other settings. My question to you is, do you feel like you've got either the research partnerships that you need, or do you see, I mean, I'm thinking from an association standpoint, as you're out here identifying these, you know, these innovators, you've got these, you know, truth seekers that I think has been on display, you know, for the next last hour and a half in a, in a really a wonderful way. Are they supported enough to be able to move the evidence base forward by doing things like comparative effectiveness research that will provide the evidence base? I mean, the failure of CMS has been in these demonstrations and pilots is the evaluation is weak and you can't implement it across the country because it really isn't scientific. And so to, to take these innovations and put an evidence base behind it that's a real scientific evidence base is what's really gonna be needed to change the delivery system my question is, does that, I mean, it seems like to me the places that are most well healed and they could do this stuff are the main problem. And that the innovation is, you know, I mean, you know and so and the innovation's happening out there in these other settings that don't have a research base to it. So, you know, what do you think about how, do, how can we connect the research base to the practice? Uh, because I think that's an area where physical therapy has a tremendous strength and opportunity. Well, I'll start and I'll say I completely agree with you. And, and the critics of what we're doing, that's the point they've brought up. And we knew that from the beginning. And we wouldn't have been able to get as far as we have and done what we had done if, if we would have slowed ourselves down with that. But we are ready now and we're in a place where we would love to develop some partnerships because our data collection could be a lot better. Um, and, and, and we would love to develop the partnerships. We'd love to work with APTA and, because I think we're on the tip of something here, and, and if we can then, in a few years, really have some solid research to back what we think we're seeing and, and what we're doing, we would just be in an even better position. So I, I, your point is, is very well taken. I mean, maybe this is a perfect place for the universities and the, and the association to, you know, just really let's look at this and see what's the infrastructure needed. When I got to Pitt, 
I couldn't believe every single researcher was basically getting Medicare data on a one-off basis, you know, by themselves. And they were housing it in places that you wouldn't believe. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of got that under control. But then we realized that, you know, with no question that we've got to provide a place where researchers can go and providers, we can partner with providers to come in. So we're actually starting to do things with other healthcare systems now. You know, Geisinger is working with us. We've got people in central Pennsylvania, uh, you know, that are starting to work. We've got the ring hospitals that compete with UPMC, you know, that are starting to work with us to make applications to PCORI around innovations that they, you know, want to. But I, I think this may be a good, good point of uh, discussion between all those universities that I saw listed last night that are doing all these amazing things, the association. And as you find the innovators out there, giving them, figuring out a way to give them some more support, you know, to put this in the research evidence. Because this is really, I think every profession is going to be going through this. And like I said, University of Pennsylvania and its nurse managed health clinics is working tirelessly to prove that a nurse managed clinic is the you know is the wave of the future and the answer to all our problems and they're you know using their their evidence to uh, to support that and I think we're gonna you know physical therapy is gonna uh, have to do the same thing so I, you know I don't know are there any final questions uh, you know I just want to say uh, to our panelists that um, this has really been terrific for me. Uh, I get to work with Tony every, you know, well, I'd say we, we have lunch every once a week. The only person on my schedule that, uh, you know, that I have that, that, you know, that much dedication to spending time with. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, st- you know Stacy, Carol, um, you know, I think this has been a, a great opportunity for hopefully the people in the audience, but also for me to learn, uh, you know, kind of where the crease is, where's the value proposition, how do we advance the value proposition, because no doubt in my mind, as I said when I started, that physical therapy is a key component to the answer. Now the question is, how is that defined? Where's the value proposition? You probably are going to have to be an incrementalist like Tony and find the low-hanging fruit and, you know, in, in, in going into that area. But um, I want to thank the association and uh, and our panelists for being here, and hopefully we've made Jules proud today. All right. Thanks.